we can succeed to have a um, normalization to normal growth and normal inflation without a deflationary recession, but it's just very rare and requires a significant amount of good fortune and uh, and, and that includes global influences mm -hmm. and well-tuned monetary and fiscal policy. And to me, though, given the size of the economy and the amount of uh, dislocation that's occurred over this last three to five years, three to four years, um, it's just a very hard thing for these policymakers to get right. Welcome to Thoughtful Money. I'm its founder and your host, Adam Taggart. It's a tough time to be an investor. There are cross currents galore in the macro data, the financial headlines, policy decision making, and market technicals. After the easy decade that followed the great financial crisis, where markets dependably churned higher year after year, and you could make money just going along pretty much any stock or ETF and, quote, buying the dips along the way, suddenly it's taking a lot more hard work to earn a good return. What are the keys to investing success in today's more uncertain environment? Well, for guidance, we're fortunate to talk with Andy Constant, founder of the macroeconomic research firm Damped Spring. His work there builds on his earlier tenure at elite firms like Solomon Brothers, Bridgewater, and Brevin Howard. Andy, thanks so much for joining us today. Pleasure, Adam. Looking forward to the conversations. Great. Same here. Well, thank you so much for coming on the program. This is the first time that uh, I've had the pleasure of, of interviewing you. So thank you. Um, looking forward to this as well. Um, I got a lot of questions here, largely based on a lot of your recent work, Andy. Um, real quick, though, before we get to those, let me just start with a general question I like to ask at the beginning of all these discussions. What's your current assessment of the global economy and financial markets? Yeah, sure. I think that's, uh, let's start with the economy. I think it's um, important to recognize the um, various um, differences in the global economy. It's not a global economy that is um, in sync across the regions. Um, and that has a lot to do, I think, with the reaction um, during and after COVID in each of the various countries, along with their regular uh, differences and dynamics, but in particular, the response to COVID and subsequently, which put the US uh, recovering more robustly, quicker, uh, more inflationary, uh, then as you go east, Europe was less inflationary and less stimulative, but also stimulative. So they uh, recovered relatively quickly. Um, and then when you get out to Asia, uh, China and Japan were um, notably absent in terms of their fiscal response and their monetary response to COVID. And they have the lagged. And so now we're sort of at the end of the supply, well, I think we're well past the supply uh, disruption portion of COVID. Um, that's probably, that was transitory, was going to be transitory. The Ukraine war put a bit more um, oomph into that action, particularly for Europe, but we're long past that. And, you know, the things going on in the Red Sea are once again, um, 
potentially supply disruption related and could cause inflation to bounce on the supply side. But what hasn't been yet resolved is uh, where inflation will settle. And now that the um, supply side um, transitory phase is over, now we're into a, you know, where will we land? And, um, you know, I've been describing three different islands, recession island, soft landing island, and a higher for longer island. And for almost 18 months now, um, well, it's even longer than that, probably 20 months now. And I've always been a resider on higher for longer island um, because I didn't see the potential uh, weakening economic growth that many on recession island found. But what I have been surprised about and been wrong lately, in particular in the last two to three months, is the um, the market sense that in the United States, at least, uh, we will successfully execute a soft landing, which in my way of thinking is uh, limited to no job loss and inflation re returning to target. And the data is heading in those directions. So. You know, I get why markets are um, pricing that type of soft landing occurring. I'm just still very uncertain whether it will actually occur. And betting on a soft landing at this stage in markets seems to be, you know, a bad risk return bet. And is that because you think, um, how much of that is because you think markets may be wrong? Um, that it might not be a soft landing overall, and how much of that is due to current levels of market valuation where they're just quite elevated? Well, I mean, I think the 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 levels is the consensus. That's that's where investors have placed their chips, and um, buyers and sellers have met, and so the buyers have met, have decided that there's a soft landing, and the sellers have said, well, maybe not, but at this level, we're not going to bet on that. And so I think it's mostly about market pricing. I don't think there's any certain any additional certainty just because we're, you know, I like to think of this in the metaphor as closer to the runway, whether we're going to slam hard into that runway, runway um, land and taxi to the gate, or have to touch and run and go off the other end of the runway for another trip around. And so I'm just not sure where we are in that phase. And maybe that's my failure, but I know where the market is. And so to me, it's a matter of making a risk reward bet on what the outcomes could be. And, you know, if I lose 500 basis points by saying over cash, by saying, you know, a soft landing isn't going to occur and assets make 10% this year, bonds, stocks, gold, the, a portfolio of assets make 10% this year. Um, and I'm, you know, I make 5% on my one, one year bill. I'm okay with that because yeah. I think the downside is quite a bit more. Right. Right. And the downside in the five year or in, in the bill, the one year bill is zero. You get to sleep really well at night. Um, <clears throat> all right. So, um, great entry. Um, let me ask a couple of questions about your framework. Then I want to actually get into inflation a bit. When you talk about these islands, um, recession island, soft landing island, and higher for longer island, um, is is the recession island the hard landing island? Yes, yes. Okay. That's when the economy either uh, when when real growth 
um, goes to well below trend uh, and unemployment rises. Okay. So just help me understand on your higher for longer island that lag effects don't eventually get us to recession island. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I think that's the trick, right? Um, you have to think about what is going to cause inflation, what the cycles of the economy are likely to be. And economies go through cycles. And this economy here may is going to be a slightly different cycle than ones in the past, but it's going to have cycles. And so the question is, you know, we've come from a period of very high not, uh, real growth and very high um, inflation driven by uh, strong demand from the from government passing on um, money to um, the economy through spending, and which was monetized by the Fed, mm -hmm. and um, supply chain disruptions. And so, normally, if it was just if 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 inflation had, had never had that supply dis, um, um, disruption, the question is, would we be in a you know, in a classic cycle, we're then in an expansionary, inflationary environment. And the things that would result in the next cycle of a inflationary, expansionary cycle are high cost of long-term debt, which makes individual next real projects more expensive, mm -hmm. and levering up um, and that levering up causes um, eventually people expecting higher real growth than uh, than um, than actually occurs, yeah. which causes these projects to fail and the marginal new levered up player to start cutting, which causes a reduction in demand, which causes a reduction in um, somebody else's income, which causes firings, which, and that's how a inflationary expansionary cycle turns into a deflationary recession. And so, you know, if it wasn't for the supply chain disruption, who knows where we'd be, but that's, you know, that would be a normal cycle coming from an inflationary expansionary experience. And what determines the depth of each of those things at some level is monetary and fiscal responses. And so um, we can succeed to have a um, normalization to normal growth and normal inflation without a re deflationary recession, but it's just very rare and requires a significant amount of good fortune and uh, and, and that includes global influences mm -hmm. and well-tuned monetary and fiscal policy. And to me, though, given the size of the economy and the amount of uh, dislocation that's occurred over this last three to five years, three to four years, um, it's just a very hard thing for these policymakers to get right. And so to the extent that they underdo, they overdo spending and underdo uh, with um, um tightening, you end up with a higher for longer environment. At some point, they recognize that they have been unsuccessful in causing this inflationary expansion to slow, and they take additional steps. Um, and that's really been the story of the last 18 months. The Fed has continued to raise rates. Um, 
But unfortunately, fiscal has continued to pump money. And so the effects of the tightening have been felt less than they otherwise would have if fiscal had been a bit more austere. And so they haven't gotten it right yet, and they've gotten it right wrong on the on the on the stronger growth, stronger real growth side than anybody certainly that was living on Recession Island expected. But ultimately, if they have a, and this is a question, if the policymakers, which particularly in this cycle includes fiscal policymakers, have an objective to bring this inflationary high NGDP um, economy back into trend um, NGDP, um, there's more work to be done. And it may not be the Fed, it may have to be on fiscal, and fiscal may not have any interest in doing that, right. which would mean that we'd last longer in a higher for longer environment than certainly than markets are priced. Okay, so um, I, I think if I'm understanding this correctly, then that your higher for longer scenario is sort of something I've been flagging for a while here, which is <clears throat> we've had at least right up until the last Fed meeting, um, you know, the Fed really working hard to jam on the the monetary brakes on the economy. All right, we're gonna we're gonna tighten, we're gonna hike rates, we want to slow things down. But you've had the fiscal side jamming on the economic accelerator at the same time. Right. So you're 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 kind of, you know, burning the engine to a certain extent. Uh, but that's what's been keeping things going stronger for longer, we'll say, than the recession island folks thought. So it sounds like that's sort of your your higher for longer scenario is when that's still going on. And I, I guess I want to maybe trundle into the policy side of things, which is presumably that, that it, being at odds like that can't last forever and, and and maybe maybe the fed is blinking here which you know a lot of people were surprised by powell's last press conference but i, I guess the question is is i, I want to ask how long can you continue to have those sort of monetary and fiscal forces be at odds but maybe the better question is just what do you see happening going forward policy-wise both on the monetary side and the fiscal side Right. So I think what we now know about the Fed is that they are um, thinking about a, a lot of things. And let me enumerate the things. Um, firstly, the most important thing that they have said from the get-go is that their preferred tool for monetary policy is the short-term interest rate. And so um, they've described QT, which is another form, uh, another lever that they are have currently pulled, as operating in the background and not, and largely priced in to uh, when it was announced back in um, uh, early 2022. Um, and so we have the monetary, the uh, that the the particular lever that they are focused on is uh, the short-term interest rate, and they've made it very clear though the market seems to have woken up to this idea when Waller spoke in early December, they have made it clear for um, 15 months prior um, when they wrote their first SEP that described the path of the economy that they expected, the slowing of, of inflation, the falling of uh, uh, the increase in unemployment and the slowing of real GDP, and that that would lead to a rate cut in 2024. 
and and further cuts in 2025. And it all came crystal clear to markets when Waller spoke, but it, it had been reiterated prior to that by Powell and by each SCP, each dot plot. And that is that uh, for a given level of a of fiscal, uh, of monetary policy. Let's say they have a, a restrictive agenda. For that restrictive rate, they have a rate. It's some premium to their completely theoretical R star. Um, and they have a rate and they'd like to keep it at that rate and stay restrictive for as, as long as they view the need to be restrictive. And then um, when inflation comes down, in order to stay similarly restrictive real interest rates, you have to cut the nominal rate. And that's been in the SCP from the get-go. And last uh, June, it was in at uh, 100 basis points of cuts in 2024. In September, it was at 50 basis points of cuts in 2024. And now it's at, a, at 75 basis points of cuts in 2024. And it's all just the same Taylor rule that as inflation falls, you cut nominal rates to maintain the same level of restrictive policy. But the market is reacting in um, uh, in, in many different ways to that. Um, there have been periods of time leading up to the banking crisis in which um, um, cuts were um, for 2024 went to hikes in the balance of 2023 and then no cuts in 2024 and to a point today when, well, not today, but soon after the Fed meeting in which 165 basis points of cuts were priced into 2024, right. which is significantly more cuts than the Fed, who's basically kept it fairly, you know, within 25 basis points of where they are right this minute for the whole year. For 2024 and the market has went you know said that the the fed is behind the curve ahead of the curve behind the curve and so markets have fluctuated on that news while the macro economy has just been doing the basically the same thing um growth jobs all the real sort of hard data things related to the growth have been pretty good um and inflation uh has come down rapidly um, driven, I think, mostly by supply side, but potentially also the short-term interest rate hikes have um, caused some demand side yep. contraction. Okay, so um, so going forward policy-wise, um, I'm interpreting this, so correct me uh, in any way, but it sort of sounds like you're taking the Fed more or less at their word. You, you don't think that they're being terribly contradictory from the script that they've laid out kind of from the start of this thing. Um, how about the fiscal side? Yeah, the fiscal side's in gridlock. So um, the fiscal side, the most of the traditional fiscal impulses have to have a, that, that can either, you know, that can cause some sort of market an economic reaction has to occur when you have um, a unified um, House, Senate, and presidency, and we just don't have that. So there, no, no surprise, this gridlock has resulted in fiscal being fairly neutral um, in terms of, and unlikely to be able to be used as a lever by 
the administration to have an effect on the economy. Um, they have two other tools. Um, and one of the tools is something I've been spending a lot of time explaining to people over the last couple of years, but recently for high effect, is uh, what their cho choice is, how they spend the checking account that they have, which is called the TGA, and um, how they issue uh, the debt they need to pay back the Fed and finance the economy. And those things actually have some sort of lever to uh, the real economy and to financial assets. And so I think that's where you've seen most of the moves that have come in markets in 2023 were associated with that lever being pulled. Mm -hmm. And essentially, because the Fed has said that quantitative tightening um, is just going to occur by allowing their balance sheet to run off to mature um, in the background, essentially that lever the effectiveness of quantitative tightening has been entirely handed to the fiscal side, to the treasury. And they've used it um, for a variety of good and bad. And I'm, I'm a believer, probably less cynical than most. Um, I think they've basically done what they should have done, but it's had meaningful impact on markets. Okay, and, and that's because it's basically provided incremental liquidity that has found its way into markets and propped up the markets more strongly than most expected heading into 2023? So the Treasury general account spending, which happened um, from um, the beginning of the end of 2022 to the um, uh, middle of 20 of the summer um, before it was rebuilt, was due to the debt ceiling. And what it did is it allowed people to continue, it gave the spending that had already been legislated to the real economy, mm -hmm. which they could have used to buy financial assets, and they would have had to buy some financial assets, but for the debt ceiling, the government didn't issue any. So because they were not sopping up some of that liquidity with issuance of bills, notes, and bonds, that left the the um, the spending um, to be stimulative to both the economy and financial assets. And I think you saw that in both of those things um, in the first half of the year, leading into a pretty robust GDP print uh, this uh, in Q3. Um, and then starting in July, they said, we're going to issue a ton of bonds and stocks and bonds and bills and notes um, for the balance of the year to rebuild our checking account. And so that resulted in not only did they have to issue to rebuild their checking account, but they also had to reissue to pay back the Fed and they had to issue to fund the, uh, the deficit. Um, and that put a significant pressure on assets in uh, July through late July through um, Halloween. Um, and at that point, um, you know, the market had been pushed down quite a bit. And the Treasury decided to delay in increasing coupon bond issuance um, on Halloween. And that was the bottom. The market's been up ever since. Okay, so we've been Pulling these 
these levers on the fiscal side that seem to have been driving the action more of late versus the monetary ones. Um, there are a couple of other programs out there that are also affecting liquidity. I know you've written them uh, about them in your most recent report, and I've, yeah. I've had people on this channel sort of talk about them, and I'm hoping maybe you can just sort of help demystify a little bit about this for people. So there's the reverse repo program uh, that has been uh, getting drained, and as it is drained, that is seen as, as, as an easing uh, a stimulative factor, but that thing runs out at some point in time. Um, there's also uh, the the bank rescue program that was put into place almost a year ago, um, the BFTP, uh, and that is coming up for technically, I guess, expiration. Although it's debatable what's going to happen. Uh, you know, will the Fed continue to extend it? Who knows? I'd love to get your thoughts on that. I've had some people on this program that say, "Hey, those two things are kind of timed around the same time." Basically, you know, if you're finger to the wind, looking at how the repo reverse repo uh, program is, is decreasing. And and some have said that's kind of been masking the impact of QT and that once those things stop, are amended, you know, diminished, whatever, then we're going to really feel the bite of QT much more than we felt so far today. Um, don't know if you agree with, with all of those assessments, but I'm, I wonder if you can just sort of demystify the soup of all these other levers that are being pulled that are driving the action too. Sure, I'll try. Um, um, you know, my most recent damp spring report was uh, entitled The Evolution of the Fed Balance Sheet. And that's really, we're talking about three, really four and possibly five items on the Fed balance sheet that are moving around quite a bit and have, you know, need to be understood. Um, and so to do that, you also have to understand um, two other important uh, three really other important entities that exist. One is banks who take bank deposits um, from people who can spend that money on financial assets or consumption, um, who also can create money out of thin air by lending it to people uh, for those things. Um, money market mutual funds who have uh, taken on a significant amount of cash in the last, um, because of the sizable government spending, who need to invest in uh, something that pays cash-like returns. And then investors themselves, um, investors who are interested in owning risky assets, either long-term treasury bonds or corporate bonds or equities, um, and their willingness and ability to uh, lever up their investments or delever their investments. And so those are the those are the players in this game, and every one of them has an impact. Um, so let's just start with what's actually happening to the RRP. So the RRP is a program that the Fed has on its balance sheet that allows money market mutual funds to, uh, banks are allowed to, but they don't use it for a, a, a reason that's not worth going into. Money market mutual funds are the lion's share of the money that's invested in the RRP. And that money provides overnight interest, interest to the money market mutual fund, which is very attractive to them. Um, you know, it's not a T-bill that matures in seven days or 364 days or somewhere in between. It's ready money in case somebody wants to make a withdrawal. 
So they, they've placed some money with the Fed and they get the SOFR interest rate for that. Um, and so why does the Fed have that program? Well, the reason why they have that program is the money market mutual funds have all this cash. And if they didn't have this program to give the money to the Fed, they would chase other short-term interest-bearing um, investments like T-bills and private sector repo and drive interest rates lower because they would have this demand, which would result in interest rates, market interest rates being below the Fed's target. So the RRP program allows the Fed to keep interest rates in their target range. And so that's why the program exists. Um, because there was this excess money, it had to, uh, and the Fed wanted to manage monetary policy, it had to offer this program. Now, now we're going to step into the shoes of the money market mutual fund investor who has three principal investments. They have the they have cash from their investor. Um, they can go to the RRP, which we just talked about. They can go to private. They can provide private sector repo, which allows investors to lever up, or they can buy T bills. But T bills have a longer maturity, and so they have to consider: is are T bills a good deal today, or not a good deal today? And that's a complicated question. You know, if you look at where interest rates are, one there's 160, 150 basis points of cuts priced into 2024. That would, to me, say, you know, is a T bill a good deal? Well, I don't know. It's you know, it's yielding based on that 150 basis points of cuts in one year. So they're constantly comparing the overnight rates they get in repo, both RRP and um and uh, private sector and bills. But we do know that for the last six months, um, the Fed, the Treasury has been issuing $1.9 trillion of bills. And that's cheapened bills up enough so that money market mutual funds say, yeah, I'll take my bills. And so they do. And what happened, and you can see that by the extending of duration of their of their average maturity of investments. Um, and you can see that by the decline in the RRP, because what the money market mutual fund is doing is saying, I don't I'll take my money back from this program and invest in bills. So sorry, the, the decrease then in the RRP is really a market driven event versus a Fed intention-driven event, where it's just the, the money market fund saying, I think I got a better use for that that money than parking it in the RRP. Right. Most of it, the, the so there's two things that are happening at the same time. One is that the um, government is trying, had been trying to rebuild the Treasury General account from 40 billion, where, well, it was very close to zero at, during the debt ceiling, to what is now in the 700s. And so that created a drain on the private sector. So there's a drain on the private sector from that. And there's a drain because $80 billion, $60 billion of, of, of Fed runoff happens every month. So that combination of things, of $60 billion times, call it five months, and 
750 billion of, of TGA created a drain on the private sector of about $1.3 trillion, $1.4 trillion. Um, and so that's what's happened. So now the question is, who does it come from? Why did it come from the RRP instead of from what are the the only other alternative for that um, um, drain, bank reserves. Bank Thanks. reserves have yeah. been stable. And that's where the market forces comes in. The RRP investor only has three choices, bills, private sector repo, and um, the RRP depositors who have bank reserves offsetting them, banks themselves who could buy assets, could buy any asset all, at all. They could buy stocks, they could buy um, um, loans, they can buy mortgages, they can buy long-term treasuries, they can, they can buy anything they want. And so they haven't really changed their portfolio allocation meaningfully. They what has happened is we had to drain the system of 1.3 trillion and it came out of the RRP. And so that's all that's happened. Now, does that mean that there's been a liquidity injection or contraction? Um, the money in the RRP, sorry, the money in the money market mutual fund, those investors, they don't know the difference. They, they they don't know. They 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 have their money in the money market mutual right. fund. They're just they getting their money market return every they, year. They don't care where it's invested. So they're not changing. And so the question is, is the so bank reserves haven't really changed very much. Um does that mean that and the depositors, you know, they're they're just depositors. Bank balance sheets haven't grown at all. So it doesn't seem like there's been a, a, a contraction or um, expansion of risk-taking that's associated with this whole year's worth of action. Um, so to me, that that net liquidity argument that many, um, yeah. I'm sure, on your program have described depends entirely on ultimately what bank reserves do. They've been relatively stable and certainly wouldn't account for any change in markets. But more importantly, bank reserves do not provide banks with any ab additional ability to lever up, to print money, to create money, or cause them to contract because we no longer live in a world in which bank reserves are a are required. Fractional banking was ended. Mm -hmm. Fractional reserve banking was ended pre around COVID. So I think that whole idea of liquidity like that is less important um, nowadays. Um, okay, so anyway, sorry, let, me, let, let, me just, let me just clarify two things. One, so it sounds like you're saying the draining of the RRP, it's not really a net contributor to liquidity. It's almost more just sort of like an asset swap. Cash is going from this bucket, you know, at the RRP over to this bucket over here in T-bills. Um, just to clarify for the audience, when you say that um, uh, fractional reserve um, requirements for banks were ended in COVID, uh, they were ended, meaning banks didn't need to hold any reserves at all. Their requirements were were completely removed. Is that correct? Yeah, zero. There yeah. is no reserve requirement in the U.S. banking system. What is required is that the only way you can 
if if um, Adam, if you uh, send a check from Wells Fargo to me, and I deposit it at my, and you have an account at Wells Fargo, and I deposit it at Chase, um, my deposit grows, your deposit shrinks, and bank reserves are transferred between Wells Fargo and City uh, and Chase. So bank reserves are needed. They literally provide the way that banks settle the checks that their account holders write. So don't get me wrong, bank reserves are needed, but they aren't part of the thing that determines whether a bank can offer a new loan or be forced to redeem an old loan. Got it. Got and it. so okay. the question is, and this is the big thing about that I wrote this about, the this uh, f evolving Fed balance sheet, which is, I said that part of the drain on both, so, so RRP plus bank reserves is being drained by TGA plus QT. TGA is now full, so there's no need for that drain. So now the only thing that drains RRP and bank reserves is QT. And whether RRP gets drained or bank reserves get drained is subject to bills market forces. So that's the picture that I'm trying to pay, paint for you. The Because the TGA is no longer being drawn, RRP isn't going to fall as rapidly. And so extrapolating to say three months from now is just not doing the hard work one needs to do. Mm -hmm. uh, in that the drain is not occurring that rapidly anymore because the TGA has been built. But the market forces of T-bill issuance and val the value of a T-bill relative to the RRP rate could result in shifts as they both fall because of QT, shifts from one to the other. And that'll depend on market forces. And so that's the picture. And over the weekend, um, uh, well, firstly, with the Fed minutes on what last Wednesday, and then over the weekend with um, Lori Logan's speech, um, the idea of slowing QT um, was surfaced, and markets took off on Monday on that news. So the trial so balloon far, has been floated, <laughs> right? The end, and and <laughs> I saw uh, one of the houses. I think it was Bank of America um, say that we read this thing as a signal that QT will be over by June. And so July, will there'll be no more QT at all. And I think that's the most extreme view that I've read, that they really want to end QT, um, you know, take the balance sheet down, uh, what's that, four more months, five more months, um, and reduce the pace starting early. That's like a $200 billion decline in um, further decline in their balance sheet. Um, that's the most aggressive interpretation of this thing. And I've laid out in my work a number of alternative in, uh, um, um, interpretations. Um, but I think the most important thing that was, that was described in Lori Logan's um, conversation uh, speech is number one, she is concerned that the rise, the fall in long-term interest rates that from 5% to 4% uh, 
is um, an easing of monetary, a significant easing of monetary policy and is um, taking away some of the um, monetary tightness that the that she thinks the that the markets the the economy needs for inflation to be brought down she right. said that in one part and then she described concern about the rrp reaching zero as a what i read it as as a financial stability concern that somehow when the rrp reaches zero and we'll get to the btfp in a moment too because that's as yep. you said, on the calendar, um, that there'll be some sort of frictions that could cause uh, central bankers to decide to slow stop QT. And that and this is the big tagline that that speech had in it that I think markets have completely ignored, which is her desire to slow the pace of QT so that it can achieve its goal and so her the tagline is slower for longer. Okay. So that and so the question that begs is what is the direct what what when 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 you know we're all market observers when should the QT end? And the Fed's been pretty clear that they think that when some combination of RRP plus reserves is around 11% of GDP they should begin to taper. And that's the only thing they have on print in print. Chairman uh, Governor Waller said that about a year ago, and they've reiterated that that statement time and time again. And that's a statement that would say that there's a trillion dollars more of balance sheet reduction to do before they are complete, as opposed to Bank America's idea of two hundred billion. What Lori Logan is saying is to get to a trillion and not stress the system so that something breaks, let's just go a little slower. Let's do it slow. Yeah. And that would get us to what? Like six trillion on the Fed balance? Uh, in terms of assets, uh, six. Yeah. Um, in terms of bank reserves, around 2.8 trillion. Okay. RRP is at zero by then. Yeah. But, so, it, but it, it sounds like the goal is not really to get down to pre-pandemic levels on the balance sheet that they're kind of saying, ah, 50% is good enough. 50% right. of the increase is good enough. <laughs> right. And you can think about the Fed's balance sheet on that side, but I think you have to think about what it is in terms of bank reserves, because every for them to bring their balance sheet down, they'd have to take bank reserves out of the system. Yeah. And so remember what I said, bank reserves are important for, not for deciding, not for banks to determine how much leverage they have that's being handled by many other things in stress tests and in the basel three framework yeah. but what is important is this um this grease that flows through yeah. the, the system all the time basic functioning it sounds like basic functioning and so you know you have 6500 banks in the united states you know 30 of them are the big ones but they need reserves so you can't take the balance sheet down to three trillion, because that would literally mean no reserves. Because the only way to take the balance sheet down is to take is that's an asset. The liability is bank reserves. Yeah. So it's the RRP know, and bank reserves. Once the RRP is zero, it's all coming out of bank reserves. Yeah. Right. Unless the government wants to run a smaller <laughs> checking account, which they have statutory reasons why they can't. So the the principal 
relation then that's why people are looking not at the asset side of the balance sheet but at the reserves the liability side and the bank reserves and so they've got a number that's a trillion away and so they want to make sure they get it and so i read lori logan's thing as financial stability related and so that begs the question you know what's going to break mm -hmm. and maybe this is the transition to the btfp well, sure. I think that's that was put in place when the system started to break. Yeah. Right. And so the BTFP was a program in which um, not dissimilar from the uh, discount window, which is has been a, you know, a decade, century, maybe, I don't know, long program for the Fed in which troubled banks who need bank reserves can lend physical assets, bonds and stocks and loans to the Fed. Um, and the Fed will give them bank reserves for it as um, against the collateral they pledge. And that's all BTFP is too. It just happens to have some, um, it, it credits the collateral in a way that they get more dollars for every piece of collateral, they more reserves for every right. piece of collateral they offer. That's a small thing. That's a haircut thing. It's not as, as important as most think. Um, but what is important is um during the time, deposit flight was occurring at many of these troubled banks because people wanted their money, uh, bank runs. And so $100 billion of deposits went from one, you know, the troubled banks to the banks that weren't troubled. And remember that Greece, with it were the bank reserves. And so these banks no longer had bank reserves. And so they couldn't operate without bank reserves, and this allowed them to do it. And so it's going to end. It's scheduled to end on March 11th. And um, Vice Chair Barr, who's responsible for this program, uh, said he intends to end it. Um, and uh, John and um, um, Governor Williams yesterday said it looks like it's going to end. Um, and so we have this March 11th date. And at that point, all these banks that have $140 billion, by the way, the, there's there's been a technical thing, which is the program was designed poorly. And now uh, banks with no, no problems at all are using the program because it can be arbitraged. And I won't right. go into the details of that. Right. But, but basically just means that some banks that aren't necessarily struggling are getting using it to get kind of free money through this arbitrage. Yeah, not only free money that pays fifty basis points to them for nothing. They literally pay the Fed and receive from the Fed More. doing nothing <laughs> and make fifty basis points. So that's a bad thing. So that's a good reason to end the program. The bad reason to end the program is these troubled banks that borrowed a hundred billion dollars, you know, in the first month of the banking crisis. And so right. what do they stand? And I'm sorry, let, let me ask a question that you can address in your answer, which is, uh, so the, the, a big reason these banks were troubled is they were sitting on collateral that they had amassed, basically following the Fed script, which was that interest rates are going to be low forever, right? And they were buying what they thought was safe collateral, right? These, in many cases, you know, sovereign bonds, you know, treasuries. And all of a sudden, the Fed changed the game on them. Right. And that was back in March of last year. And if I'm remembering correctly, you know, uh, bond yields are higher today than they were back then. So if they have to start taking this, you know, collateral back from uh, from the Fed, 
it's more impaired than it was when they were in trouble in the first place. So tell me, how, how does ending this program not instantly put these banks back into critical condition? Yeah. So firstly, let me address the um, the uh, if you're if you were a bank manager back then and you uh, are blaming the Fed, you should be fired. It's not your job. The Fed doesn't manage your bank. You manage your bank. And right. So, and you should have interest rate hedges and all that. Type and do of whatever stuff. you want. Oh, yeah. you, you can do whatever you want. If you want to bet that the Fed's going to keep interest rates low for longer, have at it. But don't blame the Fed when they don't. You know, the consequences are yours, you as the bank manager. Um, That's true. And I don't want to get into a big debate about this because I'm not a banking system expert. But if you look at the Fed's actions since GFC, it was always we're going to step in and keep things low. So it's so, somewhat understandable that these guys just said, look, this is this is the world the Fed has created for us. Right. And, you know, uh, the, and they're accepting the consequences. But let's get back yeah. to the which yeah. is. You've got $100 billion of collateral that's probably, um, well, I would say it's probably not changed much in market value, though interest rates are modestly higher. They were quite a bit higher in October, um, but modestly higher. They've also, the bonds have gotten one year shorter, and so some of them have, are accreting toward par. Yep. Um, and so... What's going to happen? Well, I guess the first thing that I should probably point out that will probably make the any any answer completely mute hmm. moot, moot is any time between now and March 10th, the day before the program ends. Anybody who's using the program can extend for a year. Mm -hmm. So there's no crisis coming. Got it. So everybody, everybody can roll over the insurance for for another three hundred sixty five days. Yeah, yeah. There is no event. So I think that's an important thing. Right. At least no um, no event for the next year. <laughs> next year, right? Yeah. Um, what I think will happen is they'll they'll end the program because right now it's it, it's offering an arbitrage and they don't want it to grow anymore. But the troubled banks have another year, so there isn't a crisis coming from that. Now, that brings us to QT, and it brings us to the RRP and what how you would project the RRP. And so, as I said, the draw on the only draw on reserves and RRP at this stage, because the TGA is fully built, is QT. So, if you include the mortgages, which you actually have to do. There's approximately 80 billion of of drain per month on the combined RRP plus bank reserves. So now the question is: Is that going to all come from the RRP? Is it going to come even even 150% of that from the RRP? And that all comes down to market forces. What are the the market forces that have been driven driving the are the preference of RRP investors to fund the um, the drain has been T-bill issuance. It is an interesting time. We're going to get a qu quarterly refunding announcement that is going to tell us how much the Fed, the, the Treasury, plans on borrowing in Q2 and what its composition is. And um, that'll be a very important bit of data. But I would say that, uh, and I, I, I'm, 
I'm not going to go into that here. Um, the um, I think it has tremendous alpha and really should be studied by your viewers, but I just can't, I don't know yet what I'm going to actually say when I think of that. But what I do think is that one has to look at the seasonal financial needs of the U.S. government and recognize that the second quarter is when large tax receipts are made and the government runs its minute, its smallest quarterly deficit. Okay, so mm -hmm. quarterly deficit will be small. What does that mean for issuance overall? And what does it mean for bills issuance? Well, if you were to take last year's coupons, uh, last quarter's coupon issuance, and assume it's fixed, there'll be no bill issuance, no new bill issuance whatsoever in all of Q2, zero. There have been times when there's been negative um, bill issuance of three, four hundred billion. This is just even if you just assume it's zero, there's not going to be any supply for the RRP to buy. And so it's unlikely that the RRP falls much at all because the market forces pressing bills yields up won't be there. So I think it's very likely that you won't see the RRP getting to zero until well into the second half of the year. Okay. And it, and thus, if we're still a long way from the RRP reaching zero, we're still a long way from any sort of taper. And that's what I would say is my overall synthesis, which is Lori Logan thinks financial conditions are too easy, which would bode for maintaining QT. Um, she's concerned about financial stability issues in the frictions as we reach zero which is a reasonable thing to be worried about, um, but wants it to go on for its full path of, you know, a trillion dollars um, and is watching. And I think they'll have, you know, another discussion in January and discussions in March. And ultimately they'll see the RRP's evolution and come to a decision around taper. But if they do nothing for 15 months, QT's done, done anyway because by then you'll have reached the trillion dollars of, 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 so it's not like a super pressing issue. Okay. All right. Um, well, that maybe hopefully helps some viewers here breathe a little bit easier who've been, you know, hearing some of these predictions of Armageddon when some of this stuff happens. Um, so first off, Andy, thank you for demystifying all that. My my, it's been great. My brain has been stretched. I've I've, I've been kind of hanging by my fingernails in part of this discussion, but I followed everything you said. And it was great. So I think our, our viewers are really going to appreciate the the clarity here. I could talk with you about these issues for much much longer, but time wise, I got to start landing the plane here. <laughs> um, so I want to get to the so what part of this. So given that outlet, right? Um, and if there's anything you want to sort of say about your general market outlook for the rest of the year, please, please elaborate. But like what, what positioning, what type of assets seem appropriate for this type of environment? What ones might you, you, you think are, you know, ill-suited? Um, how, how does this sort of translate into a positioning strategy? Right. So I think right now, uh, asset prices broadly measured by things like bond term premium um, are unattractive. Um, you know, relative to cash. It's not like they're awful. You know, they're just unattractive relative to cash. So they don't have a great risk reward. And so right now I have 
50% of my beta portfolio allocated to cash and the rest allocated to a broad selection of assets. And in my alpha portfolio, I have um, short bonds, short stocks, and that's really about it. And I'm using about, call it 40%, 40 to 50% of my risk budget short assets. Um, so I'm not taking a big bet right now. I do think that assets are by and large unattractive relative to cash. And when the Fed meets and the Treasury announces its quarterly refunding announcement, I'll see what they do. And my trigger will be if the Fed uh, walks back some of the financial conditions, um, QT-related easing that we've seen, QT-pausing-related easing we've seen, um, continues to validate the um, slow cuts that are in the SEP, and data supports them doing that, meaning data doesn't crater in the near term. And we got a decent inflation number for the first time in about 14 months that was a little warmer than it had been. If data doesn't crater, um, you know, I expect them to do that. And then I, I'm going to watch the QRA and see how much issuance the Treasury needs to do and what its composition is. And when I see both of those things, I'll either uh, flip to flat given assuming asset prices are around here or go a little bit more short. Okay. Okay. So um, basically we've got a couple of, of important milestones coming up that are going to help influence your, your choices here, but I didn't hear you say, Oh, if this happens, I'm, I'm, I'm going to get a lot more excited about risk assets and, and think about long. It still sounds like your, 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 your choices right now, you're thinking based upon what you're expecting are either flat or more short. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I do have some lots of things that would make me um, um, confident in going long an asset. Like if I were confident that inflation was going to remain high and growth was going to remain high, my preferred position would be long stocks and short bonds. If I thought that uh, inflation was going to undershoot and be low, and the economy was going to weaken and real GDP growth was going to be low, I would be long bonds and short stocks. But right now, I'm not confident of either. So the question is, should I be long everything or long cash? And where I come out right now is long cash. Got it. And it's, yeah. a, sub, it's, a, subtle, it's a subtle point. All right. Well, look, um, this has been a great discussion. Andy, I want to offer, I'll be following your work, but I, I want to offer that when you get that information, if if it does cause you to take a strongly felt position, um, please let me know or please feel free to come back on the program. Um, but we'll, I definitely want to get the word out to these viewers one way or the other um, sure. about what, what, what you decide to do there. Um, all right. Uh, I know I'm going to get a lot of uh, grief for wrapping things up here, but I got to be respectful of your time. Um, Lots of questions I didn't get to. Hopefully, we can get to them next time. Um, I do want to mention you said a lot of what your your decision is going to be uh, is going to be based upon um, the outlook for your, your assessment of the outlook for inflation and growth. Um, just a quick commercial, folks. Um, just recently recorded an interview with Lakshman Achuthan, um, and he gave his forecast for both. So that might be a nice uh, video to piggyback on top of this one once you're done watching this one. Um, as we wrap things up here, I've got two more questions to ask you. The second one is going to be that um, what's a non-monetary investment you'd recommend that folks consider? The first one, um, very important.
for folks that have really enjoyed this discussion, Andy, and maybe this was their first time getting exposed to you and in, in your your work, where can they go to follow you from here? Yeah, so I'm at Damp Spring um, on Twitter, um, and I'm taking a short sabbatical on that on Twitter till February, mostly because I want to conserve the alpha that I have in this very interesting period we're faced with. But you can also join me at DampSpring.com or uh, which is my website and you see the work I've done, which I have an exhaustive archive of prior work. All right, and actually, let me let me ask you real quick uh, about another venture that you're involved with. Um, I think it's called Two Gray Beards. And I'm, I'm, I'm happy to say that uh, working on my- Very nice, very nice. <laughs> Thank you. Um, <laughs> but but in, in there, you talk about how, um, this really struck me. You said retail investors, you know, so average investors, regular people who, who have amassed some wealth, right? You said sort of the high six to high seven figures are in quote, the most underserved category um, when it comes to working with financial advisors, that they get the highest relative fees and the worst timely advice. Can you just take a minute or two to talk about why that's the case, why that's important to you? Because the work you're doing at Two Gray Beards, I think, is to help address that issue. Um, and then maybe one other question to tack onto that. And I'm sorry to force this all in right at the end here. Is... I'll be quick. I can go. I can go on. Um, Great. Nick, Nick Giovannik and I created, who's an, an ex Solomon colleague of mine, created this. Uh, service called Two Gray Beards, in which we provide 20 minutes um, a week of videos explaining uh, what we think is important for you to know and uh, about financial markets so that you can have a better conversation with your financial advisor. And we think, and it goes back to, you know, my, my father passed recently and I was working with uh, my mother about how to manage her finances. And, you know, she's paying so, uh, you know, multiple um, tens of thousands of dollars to financial advisors, who, by the way, I think her financial advisor does a pretty darn good job. But in general, you know, people with a million to $20 million of wealth are paying 10000 to $200,000 a year in fees. And what I'm seeing broadly is there's a Let's sell them some of our high margin product alternatives, for instance, mm -hmm. and otherwise let's keep them in some form of either 60-40 or, um, or um, um, age targeting funds. Um, and that's tired. That's, you know, that's right. 40 years that that has worked. It's just unclear to me that that's the way to go forward in the environment that we're now in. And so I think that, you know, for a modest fee for us to pro pro produce these videos and for 20 minutes a week, you can end up, you do it for three months or a year, you can have a much better conversation with your financial advisor when you do, because what it mostly looks like to me is that you, unless you're extremely active, you are spending time investing in your business, investing in your life, doing the things you love. And then you're having once a quarter or once every semi-annual period, or even once a year conversation with your financial advisor, um, or you're making a a, a hard call when you say, and one in which you've got fear or whatever, 
um, when you have no background having the call, but you're calling to say, why am I losing money? Right. And paying you for it. <laughs> none of those are good things. None of those, you're just completely at a, a, a disadvantage. And I don't even think you can necessarily evaluate a financial advisor with the understanding of markets that you have to know if you what good is. So what we're trying to do is help you have better conversations with your financial advisor. So I, I love this in, in just full transparency. So what do we do here at Thoughtful Money is we have a couple of financial advisors that I think are, are much more like-minded with you, Andy, in the sense that they look at a lot of the same factors that you do and take them into account. And so I interview, I, I have them on this channel weekly. And the main reason to do that is just to model for people what a good professional financial advisor who, who takes this type of material into account, how they think, how they react, how they interpret. And it's not necessarily to work with these people, although a lot of people choose to do so. It's to show them what a good advisor looks like and how they think so that they can use that when searching for, for one on, on their own. What I love about what you're doing is you're even saying, look, you know, if, if you're going to stay with the current advisor you have right now, this, is, this information will be like a catalyst to help you get a lot more out of it than you currently are, right? And I just think that's a great service to be providing to people. Right. That's the mission. All right. Um, well, look, in wrapping up here, um, right before we get to that very last question, Andy, um, just a couple of quick housekeeping things, folks. One, if you've enjoyed this conversation with Andy, would like to see him come back on the program again, please vote your support for that by hitting the like button, then clicking on the red subscribe button below, as well as that little bell icon right next to it. Uh, and just a reminder that uh, I am um, publishing my Adam's notes, which are my Cliff Notes detailed summaries of the interviews that I do on this channel. Those are offered at my Substack, adamtaggart.substack.com. Um, all right, Andy, and wrapping up here, last question for you. We've talked an awful lot about money. Um, what's something that is not money related, but still a worthwhile investment that you think people should be adopting in their lives? So I was going to say a, a general thing, which is the most important thing you can do is uh, optimize your uh, productivity asset, meaning get good at something and be um, and earn on it. But I'm going to make it even more narrow, and it's going to sound like a gray beard. Read more books. All right. That's great. Well said. And uh, that, that builds off of, of some of the things that folks have said earlier, but, but you know, read more books, get exposed to additional frameworks. Um, one person who was making a similar comment, Andy, said that, like, you know, when you're reading an article, um, and most people just skim the headlines, which is the worst thing to do. But when you're reading an article, you're kind of getting like somebody's, you know, opinion, like something that just motivated them that day. When you're reading a book, you're reading a framework that somebody had to put together and work, you know, for a long period of time to crystallize for you. So you're getting a, a way of seeing the world. And that's a lot more valuable than just, you know, what somebody dashes off in a morning in a, in, in a fit of, you know, uh, rage or inspiration. So you're nodding as I'm saying all this. Yeah. All right. Well, very well said. Well, look, Andy, this has been wonderful. A reminder, folks, uh, if you've got some stamina left, uh, check out the interview with Lakshman Achuth, and I'll put it up right here. But Andy, I can't thank you enough. Thank you so much for coming on, everybody else. Thanks so much for watching.